simple. Your brain is there to operate your body. You're in a vessel here. It's an illusionary vessel that, that people don't realize because we're creating it in microseconds. From one second to the other, these shutters are opening and shutting, creating all this reality you see around you. It doesn't really exist. It's all spirit. It's all energy. But we're creating this. And uh, he was blowing us away, you know, and he said, but your brain can, has a capacity limit. It goes to a certain point of its, of its uh, responsibility. And unless it's in touch with the mind, unless it consents to be in touch with the mind, which the is higher mind. The mind, well, yeah, that's the mind of all of us because we're all one. Uh -huh. Unless it gets in touch with that, it doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't know what's all the way around, 360 degrees. You know, it, to any where you wanted to go, any degree you wanted to go in the color spectrum, it's there. I said, boy, that's beautiful. And uh, we've been briefed on it. I didn't, until I saw it, I didn't realize, you know, what, uh, what was going on. He said, okay, just relax. We're going to go to an area that symbolizes. He used to use symbols a lot. I mean, he'd say, you know, talking is useless. You have to use higher than talking is symbols. It's to, to reach the mind. Thinking in pictures. In pictures, right. He said, talking is, in fact, off the subject for a minute, I, I used to, one of my great, when I used to read a lot, one of my great, greatest people was Kalal Gibran, and he wrote the book, The Prophet, and in there, he said, one of his sayings was, half of what I say to you is meaningless, but it's necessary so that the other half may reach you. And I thought, well, now I get it, you know, that you you have to come from the soul, from the heart, or it's no good, it's just... Going around in circles, going around in circles, going around in circles, going around in circles. Hello, this is Alexander Irvine, and you're listening to the Bullpen Bulletins Podcast. out there in Marvelland, face front. This is Stan Lee speaking. Hey, who made you a disc jockey, Lee? Well, well, Jolly Jack Kirby. By the way, Jack, the readers have been complaining about Sue's hairdo again. What am I supposed to do? Be a hairdresser? Next time I'll draw a bald-headed. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bullpen Bulletins Podcast. I'm Vince B. I'm David Price. And we have something very special for you this episode. We have an interview with Fred Van Lenty. And Ooh. yeah, he's the writer of Marvel Adventures Spider-Man, will be the writer on Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four. He's doing this super cool Modox 11 supervillain team-up book. 
I cannot yeah, wait for that. About my nightmare come to life. <laughs> the writer of Action Philosophers and many other things. What a cool guy, and we got him for you. I had an opportunity to sit down with Mr. Van Lenty, and unfortunately, the interview was conducted during the day when David couldn't be with us. So I'm a vampire. I have to sleep during the day. Yeah, so he'll be hearing it for the first time along with everyone that's listening. So that's kind of neat. <laughs> but it, 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 it's, it was just an unfortunate scheduling uh, thing where, you know, David couldn't be there because he had to work, and, and it was fortunately on my day off from work so it it worked out kind of well but it's not something that's going to become a regular thing so uh, don't get used to it actually we shouldn't have even said anything i wonder i I wonder if anybody even noticed that i wasn't in there for the interview yeah i'm sure they'll notice (laughs) yeah I, i i sound like i'm sweating bullets and in fact i was because i need my rick jones yeah that's good I need my Rick Jones, you know, and we we throw ideas off each other. Well, you know how it works. And David wasn't there, so I felt like I was going into the interview a little bit naked. But it it, it came out very well, and thank you, Mr. Van Lenty, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So stick around. After the interview, David and I are going to talk about a bunch of recently released Marvel comics. A lot of good Marvel comics, as if there's yes. any other thing. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back after this. Enjoy. He has the distinction of being one of a mere handful of writers to simultaneously script the exploits of both Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. In his case, the Marvel Adventures Spider-Man and Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four. That's quite an honor. Uh, it's Mr. Fred Van Lenty. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start where every good story should, at the beginning. How and when did comics first enter your life? Uh, well, um, way back in the early 70s, I, uh, comics in my life kind of came in simultaneously because some of my earliest memories uh, are of my mother giving me these old, uh, the old pocketbook reprints of the Lee Ditko run on Spider-Man and then the Lee Kirby run on Fantastic Four. And... Uh, I just confirmed this with her the other month, as I tell the story a lot in interviews. Uh, she refused to read them to me, uh, the comics, because she was just sick of me constantly, insistently, you know, begging her to read them to me. So the, uh, apparently that's how I taught myself to read, which was by, you know, staring at the pictures, and since she had already gone through them with me once, uh, you know, I, I, that's how I, I <laughs> you know, that's how I actually learned to read at a fairly early age. and. It's, this came up because the whole thing has kind of come full circle because my mother, who's retired, actually uh, tutors some kids, third and fourth graders, uh, where she lives in Ohio, and she brought uh, the Marvel Adventures Spider-Man to the kids she's, she's teaching, and now apparently the kids can't get enough, and now she's running around trying to find them all. And, oh, know, cool. Buy more copies for them, so I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm, you know, I'm spreading the word. <laughs> I, spreading the gospel. There you go. I could tell by looking at some of your work that we were kindred spirits, especially your first Marvel Adventure Spider-Man. I opened the first page and I saw the Rocket Racer, and I said, mm. "I have a brother out there somewhere." You know, anyone who has the taste to use the Rocket Racer, you're okay in my book. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's that's the second time I've used the Rocket Racer, uh, but it was actually ended up being the first one published. We're relaunching later this year. Supervillain Team Up and Rocket Racers is a member of Modox Eleven. Which yeah, 
We'll get to that in a little while. That we don't want to shoot the wad too soon. The, the single issue done in one tale is, as far as I'm concerned, a dying art form. These days, the long, open-ended, you know, written-for-the-trade stories are the norm. Now, both Marvel Adventures Spider-Man and Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four feature single-issue done-in-one stories. Was it a challenge to conform your style of writing to this format? I would think it would be much more challenging to have to get it done in 22 pages. Well, I mean, obviously any kind of... uh, You know, it's a double-edged sword, because, yes, to a certain extent it is, whenever you have any kind of a a, sort of a, what I like to call a real estate... Uh, restriction, you know, you've only so much run, you know, only so much runway before you have to take off mm-hmm. or crash, you know. Uh, it can be challenging, but on the other hand, if you're a writer, particularly if you're just starting out, it's very disciplining, you know. I mean, that's, that's I think, a lot of challenge. I mean, a lot of us have friends who say, oh, I want to write, and they just, they can't sit down and find the time to actually do it. And that's, that's not a problem of talent. That's not a problem of even really necessarily time. It's a problem of discipline. And I do kind of feel like the done in one is, as our fearless leader, Mark Pedicci, likes to say, uh, it does discipline you and helps you do things, you know, like cut out dead wood and uh, really just kind of stick to the story and stick to the characters and stick to the emotional arc that you're trying to build for the characters. So... Uh, it kind of works both ways. Uh, my writing is also, by very, its very nature, very dense. So I kind of took this format like a fish to water, mm-hmm. and I, I really love it. Do you have a certain formula where you enter into, say, a certain storyline, and you, you can almost tell yourself, uh, you can feel yourself including a bit too much information, like, ah, geez, there's two subplots in this issue. I'm only going to be able to put one. You know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And as far as the, your uh, Marvel Adventures, Spider-Man, those issues are brilliant. And it, it, it feels like, to me anyway, it feels like 1970s Amazing Spider-Man. I got the same yeah. just f- excitement and vibe from them, which is, it, you know, it's like a Wayback Machine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Do you think the imprint has been unfairly judged as Kitty Fair by the majority of the comic buyers? Well, considering the increasing number of interviews I'm doing <laughs> about Marvel Adventures, I may be changing as we speak, you know, podcasts like this and, and other phone and, 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 you know, internet interviews I've done uh, and print interviews. It, it definitely seems to be changing with the world. Word is finally trickling down that, you know what, these aren't just great all-ages comics, these are great uh, comics, period. Right. And that's due to, you know... Uh, Mark Peachy and Nate Cosby, who are the, the editors of that line, and they brought in great people, you know, like Jeff Parker and uh, terrific artists to come in, like Corey, who's doing my Spider-Man run and who will be doing the second half of my Fantastic Four run. And, uh, you know, the, the, the attitude of, I think, everyone involved in Marvel Adventures is, with all due respect to the creators, as far as we're concerned, these are the main books. You know what I mean? We don't think about the other Spider-Man books, the other Avengers books, or the other, you know, uh, Fantastic Four books. We're definitely writing for our core audience and just kind of letting it, letting it fly. Mm-hmm. You know, doing, doing what we want to do, uh, even with the restrictions sort of imposed by the, the needs of the Marvel Adventures line, you know, the lack of guns and swear words and you know sex drugs and rock and roll and what have you yeah 
And I was stunned when I saw the solicitation for a hardcover version of some of the Marvel Adventures books. Like, when have... That was unheard of, that Marvel would actually consider publishing them in in an upscale format like that. And it tells me that the the work demands it. It's it's just solid, well-crafted comic book stories. Well, my understanding is is that Marvel Adventures Spider-Man, if you look at it in terms of subscriptions, is Marvel's best-selling book in subscription form. You know, it's very... It's not the strongest thing in the world in the direct market in the comic shops, but, you know, it's in Target and it's in Walmart and right. Kmart and all these other outlets where Marvel isn't necessarily comfortable, you know, uh, publishing its uh, its standard fare. And obviously places like Walmart have fairly strict content restrictions on on stuff. So obviously that was another sort of inspiration, I believe, for the Marvel Adventures line in the first place. Now... Unlike Amazing Spider-Man, where Spider-Man's identity is common knowledge, and in Bendis' Ultimate Spider-Man, where although his alter ego is still a secret, it seems like everyone in the world knows who he is, Spider-Man Adventures is a return to the early days when most of the stories detail Peter's efforts to keep his double life a secret. Do you think that his fear of retaliation against his loved ones is an essential Spider-Man story mechanic? Yes, I think specifically Anne May. Okay. I think that I have to admit, I, I you know, having grown up in the jaded eighties, I was kind of oh, secret identities. You know, if I had, I, I you know, I had the Fantastic Four attitude. If I was had superpowers, I wouldn't have secret identities. But having worked now in a bunch of these Marvel Adventures books, particularly Spider Man, and particularly uh, the next title I'm doing for Marvel Adventures, there's so much fun to be had with the secret identity and. Uh, particularly if you're a kid, where you're constantly... I mean, I think that's that's something that kids can relate to most with Peter Parker, is every kid has got something he doesn't want his parents to find out about. You know, <laughs> skeletons in the closet of, you know, varying degrees of severity, except Peter has a really severe <laughs> skeleton in his closet, and uh, he doesn't want, uh, you know, he doesn't want Amy to find out about it because, uh, you know, for one thing, she doesn't really like Spider-Man very much, and, you know, uh, she doesn't want her to become a villain magnet, which seems perfectly reasonable. And obviously, uh, coming up here in a week or two is going to be uh, Venom appearing in, in Marvel Adventures Spider-Man, and so that was fun to sort of play off of that, because obviously there's a villain who knows the Spider-Man secret identity. Right. Now, what was your reaction to the unmasking in the Civil War storyline? Uh, I thought it was an interesting wrinkle. Um, uh, you know, it, uh, certainly having now written the Spider-Man stuff, I, uh, it, I, it'll be interesting to see how long it's maintained. Right. You know, just because the secret identity seems such a, you know, the, you know what it is, is it's, it's sort of the classic schizophrenia of the tension between Peter Parker and Spider-Man, uh, where Spider-Man is constantly making demands on Peter's life and complicating it, and Peter constantly, you know, making demands or his personal life interfering with the kinds of situations Spider-Man gets into. Uh, you know, that to me is just such a part of the character. I, I totally think it's an interesting idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it does end up going back to the status quo of people not knowing who Spider-Man is, that'll be kind of interesting to see how they manage to accomplish that. So, I think it'll be quite, quite, quite difficult to put that genie back in the bottle, but we'll see. <laughs> Now, you've been blessed by some exceptional talent on your titles. Clay Mann, is that the coolest name in the world? 
On, uh, <laughs> it is. It is. I, I We're all convinced he's actually a golem, <laughs> you know, drawing somewhere. I would kill for that name. Prog. Uh, on uh, Fantastic Four and uh, Corey Hampshire on um, mm-hmm. Spider-Man and Patrick Sherberger, who I see really exploding in the in the coming years. This guy, yeah, yeah. His, his work is incredible. He's like a, uh, a cross between Umberto Ramos and Michael Golden and Bernie Wrightson. I saw the cover, which is your next issue with uh, the Venom. He, yeah. the guy is is masterful. Um, is he drawing twenty four, or is Corey Hampshire? He's not. It's, okay. It's Corey. Corey once again. Although I believe Patrick takes over after Corey. Right. But right. Patrick will be the regular penciler uh, starting with twenty five. But just world class talent, and like we said, twenty four is your last issue, and then you will be tackling another sympathetic character in the Marvel universe, Ben Grimm, member of one of the one of the members of the uh, Fantastic Four on Marvel Adventures. Fantastic Four. What are your plans for that title? Well, um, I did. I actually ended up doing the four issues of Fantastic Four before I got the Spider-Man gig. And my original idea was simply to sort of showcase each one of the different characters, but that didn't really work out because then Zeb Wells did that, and I believe his arc is ending right as mine starting. So it's the first part of, first four issues of Fantastic Four, sort of a... Uh, the attitude we took toward it, I guess you could sort of characterize the whole eight-issue line as such, is that what I love about the Fantastic Four is they're not really superheroes, you know, they're not like, you know, Dr. Doom doesn't rob banks, you know, they're not fighting muggers in the streets of New York, these these people are explorers who end up checking out weird stuff and have these other sort of weird races and beings and aliens and so forth that they end up interacting with, so... Each issue ends up having a, to be a different kind, of, ends up being a different kind of genre. Uh, the inaugural issue, which is FF21, which should go on sale in about three weeks, is uh, quite honestly one of the best things I've ever done. I'm very proud of it. And it's a story about uh, Ben Grimm ends up becoming the head of Monster Island because the subterraneans and the monsters who live on Monster Island have booted out the Mole Man. <laughs> because they've gotten completely sick of him. And they decide they need a monster uh, to rule them, and so they go out and they find the noblest monster they can think of, who is Ben Grimm, who's having his own problems with being a monster and being among regular humans in the Fantastic Four anyway. So he goes to Monster Island and you know, learns learns the truth of the dick and be careful of what you wish for. Right. It sounds uh, like a lot of fun. It's, uh, it, it is, it is, uh, it's, it's really great, and Clay did a fantastic job with all the monsters and... He's just so talented, it's sick. <laughs> and then uh, we haven't. We followed by an issue where um, Reed and Sue uh, are having real bad um, uh, relationship problems, and so they decide to go out on one final date to save the relationship. But they don't realize that these uh, that they're being stalked by shape shifting scrolls. Of course, that's called that's called the date the Earth stood still. Kind of <laughs> Very nice. And uh, Rama Tut. It shows up in the... And Ramatut, yes. yes. Ramatut, uh, that that was just Ramatut. I love Ramatut. I can't get it. I love me some Ramatut. <laughs> so, basically, the Fantastic Four go back in time and fight Ramatut. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. a little more to it than that, but I, you know, I just... And we gave them these androids, the Pharaoh's Guard. These are new characters that are debuting in Fantastic Four Adventures that uh, they all look like the Egyptian deities. You know, different powers, like, you know, the cat-headed deity and the mm-hmm. crocodile-headed deity and so forth. So 
that's more fun than you can possibly stand. And then there's a then there's a mystery. There's a mystery on a, an uh, air station that the submariners set up to uh, uh, get better relations with the surface world. And there's a theft on the station while the Fantastic Four are there attending the grand opening. And Reed has to solve the mystery before uh, uh, within a certain amount of time because the prime suspect is the Invisible Woman. That's pretty cool. And then that's followed by, and Clay drew those four issues, and then um, the next four issues, uh, Nate said we'd like you to do four more, so I said, well, why don't, it looks like you guys haven't done Galactus yet. And so there's a four issue, four issues done in one of, that's called The Coming of Galactus, that uh, they're all self-contained, but they all involve the different figures from the original Lee Kirby trilogy, you know, issues, I think it's 48, 49, and 50 yes. yeah. of Fantastic Four, where we have one issue is the Watcher, one issue is the Inhumans, then you have an issue of Galactus, and then the aftermath with the Silver Surfer. Oh, that sounds That's awesome. A lot of fun. Yeah. And Corey, Corey draws a mean Watcher. That's all I have to say. Nice. Pencils have already come in from that. I guess we have to go into it. Let's let's talk about Supervillain Team Up, Modox 11. Let's do it. Um, you're doing this with artist Francis Portela? Mm-hmm. And uh, over the... Um, I swear, Modoc must have the same PR agent as Doctor Light because he's gone from from laughing stock to crowd pleaser like overnight. He's everywhere. Yes, I remember when Modoc was considered the joke. Oh no, this issue features Modoc, you know. But now, uh, when the cover to Marvel Adventures Avengers number nine, Jeff Parker's deal hit the net, you could almost feel the fanboys just convulsing with delight when they saw this thing. Uh, what are your plans for the big guy? Well, um. Let's not get too out of control. He is still basically a joke. <laughs> and his problem is that he's got to sort of get out uh, from under the shadow of being a giant floating head and getting people to take him seriously. Uh, the uh, the other problem, uh, of course, is that their uh, aim is constantly trying to kill him uh, because he sort of ran them into the ground way back when. And uh, actually that conflict is set up is going to be set up more... Um, sort of defined more clearly in an upcoming arc of Ms. Marvel that Brian Reed is doing. Uh, and I just read the first issue, uh, script of that arc, and that's really exciting. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So it's going to lead right into the Super Valentino, apparently. And uh, basically, uh, Madoc is sick of being hounded by AIM, and which has left him basically uh, poverty-stricken since I'm not sure if you are aware of what the employment opportunities are for giant flowing heads, but they're not good. <laughs> you know, you can't get a job at Wendy's. I mean, maybe you could. Maybe it's management, but, you know. No, it's, it's not you happening. You start blasting people with your mind bolts because, you know, people complain about overcooked baked potatoes. You know, you've got a serious problem. <laughs> but uh, uh, basically, uh, it's a classic uh, heist picture where Madoc gathers together... Uh, a team of down-on-their-luck supervillains for one final big heist, the biggest heist in the history of the multiverse. And I was very surprised to read the identities of some of those supervillains. Yep. Once again, Rocket Racer, uh, Tell the, me about it. the uh, Puma, mm-hmm. Spot, Armadillo, yep. Ch- Chameleon, and I've heard, uh, and I'm hope I hope you can confirm this, they travel in the big wheel. Oh hell yes! Oh, oh yeah. <gasps> You got you got to bring you got to get in the big wheel. You're my favorite person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try. 
this is all all the detritus of the uh, <laughs> the last thirty years of Marvel just uh, congealing in well, one you spot. You know, the guy, the big wheel tried to kill the rocket racer. <laughs> I am aware of that. All that in his one and uh, the continuity guys. I, I thought he only made the one appearance, but apparently I'm I'm a bit off there. The continuity guys tell me he appeared elsewhere. Oh, yeah. But my conceit is that Rocket Racer was like, "Hey, free big wheel," you know. <laughs> Jump in. You know, he's a tech head. He's not going to let that thing go to waste. And so how many issues is the Modox 11? The, it's five issues right now. Okay. And is this something that may continue if a uh, response merits? Yes. I think you probably got to raise all Marvel books like that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, that, most definitely. Yeah, well, and it definitely leaves itself, lends itself to a sequel. And I'm I'm so happy that they've prefaced it with supervillain team up because that that's a nice oh, little yeah. homage to the uh, Namor and uh, Doctor Doom series from way back when. Yep. Now, by working in both mainstream and independent comics, you get to have your cake and kind of eat it too. Since most of the people who listen to our show probably haven't heard of Action Philosophers, which is a crime because it's a great book, a book you do with uh, Ryan Dunleavy. Uh, would you mind giving our listeners uh, the rundown? On this title, sure. Action Philosophers uh, is the lives and thoughts of history's A-list brain trust, told in hip and humorous fashion, uh, in comic book form. We do three philosophers per issue, and uh, we combine insightful graphic commentary with toilet humor, and use jokes to get across, you know, existentialism, uh, Schopenhauer. Hegel. Uh, in fact, our latest issue should be out in time for the New York Comic Con, and that is the Senseless Violence Spectacular, uh, Action Philosophers number eight, which features Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, and uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, as performed by the Peanuts characters, and a little thing we call your good man, John Stuart Mill. And you're probably thinking, Fred, what do those thinkers have to do with violence? The answer, nothing. That's why it's senseless. <laughs> you, are, you are not right. Tip your waitress, folks. Now, um, I'll be here all night. Unlike the Marvel stuff, where you just complete your part of the deal, hand off your script, and you're done, you're essentially married to action philosophers. Yeah, yeah, you have to nudge and prod that book along. And working on both sides of the industry like that, mainstream and independent, has it given you um, an insight into what may be wrong with the distribution system? As it exists right now, well, um, well, honestly, uh, you know, the, the, I don't think there's anything really wrong with the distribution system. And I'm not just saying that in case my diamond drop is listening. <laughs> Go diamond, you know. No, 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 no. no I, I honestly don't think there's really anything. There's really necessarily anything wrong with the distribution system. I just think the market is at a point where it's very sort of narrowly, you know construed in terms of what is, you know, going to sell. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm, I have to admit, I was totally blown away by the reception Action Philosophers is getting. I never would have predicted that in a million years. I mean, basically, we ended up writing these strips and Ryan drawing the strips. I'm kind of a lark, kind of through a, a startup comics magazine that never materialized, and so we were like, well, heck, let's just go out and apply for the Xerox grant once we got it, the self-publishing grant that uh, Peter Laird's foundation gives out. And uh, once we did that, I was kind of like, well, you know, this is cool. We'll, you know, we'll we'll probably won't crack a thousand copies per issue, but, you know, 
it'll be published. We're using, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles money to do it. So it's not like it's costing us anything. So, you know, who cares? I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I I continue to be wrong. And nothing could make me happier than being as wrong as I was. And uh, I just think it's one of those things where it's, it's such a unique thing in the comics format. That's basically why it's it's so successful. While, you know, I did a, you know, I've done superhero and science fiction independent projects before that just completely, you know, however well they were perhaps reviewed at times, they just tanked. And I just think that's because that narrow genre mark is taken up by, you know, DC Marvel and the folks who've become famous doing DC and Marvel. Right. And that's just you know that's just the market. That's just the way it works. Uh, I don't, I don't know what I don't know what you could do to change it. You know, I mean, that's sort of the problem with entertainment. You know, is you never know what's going to be popular until it hits, and it's always such a specific moment in history when it does hit. It's not like it's something that you can really replicate or synthesize. Or if you could, I would be a lot richer than I am. You know, right. <laughs> I'd it, bottle it and then I'd, it, I'd set up my own website and then. It's like the first season of Twin Peaks. Who saw that coming? Exactly. Yeah. And then you have the copycats. For Survivor. Right. And I, I think I mean, Action Philosophers has a built-in selling. Its uniqueness is is the yeah. thing that, you know, it almost sells itself. And it, I really, I really enjoy the book. I love it. Thank you. Uh, anything else in the future from um, Fred Van Lente? Yes. Uh, and this is germane to our overall Marvel Adventures uh Discussion, uh, free comic book day is coming on May 5th, and uh, as part of the Marvel Adventures book, you'll get to read uh, a free preview of the next Marvel Adventures title, which is Marvel Adventures Iron Man. Wow. Which is uh, which I am writing. And the first issue I just found out this morning, to check since I knew it was doing this podcast, is being solicited for June. So Excellent. keep your eyes peeled for Marvel Adventures Iron Man number one with covers by Michael Golden. Wow. Interiors by James Corgero, who's a terrific young artist, and I hope I pronounced his name right. Um, and working with him and the uh, Inker Scott Koblish is totally awesome. And the artwork, the artwork for the 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 free comic book story is just mind-boggling. It's awesome. Well, I guess Tony won't be hitting the broads in this one. At least not. Yes. A- <laughs> he'll, he'll be he'll be he'll be addicted to Pepto Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> so, Actually, uh, he's, uh, this is something we can't, he'll be addicted to pinball. That's what I'm thinking. If he can't, you know, he's hanging out with the wrong guys down at Coney Island. You know, gosh so. darn it! So, Leave that thing alone. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks. And uh, feel free to come back anytime you have anything to plug. We'd love to have you. Sounds good. Well, we'll do something once uh, Modox Eleven starts coming oh, up on the horizon. We'll do a nice. Marvel villains crime thing. That would be awesome. Cool. This episode of Bullpen Bulletins is sponsored by the second annual New York Comic Con. New York Comic Con is bigger, better, and has double the space with more gaming and anime for 2007. Come to the Jacob Javits Center February 23rd to the 25th and experience the biggest pop culture event in New York City featuring comics, anime, manga, graphic novels, video games, trading card games, RPG, MMOs, toys, movies, TV, celebrities, and more. Guests of honor include Stan Lee, Jeff Smith, J. Michael Straczynski, and George Perez, with many more to be announced. For a complete list of guests as well as show information, visit www.nycomiccon.com. 
Buy your tickets online now to ensure your spot for the 2007 show. Tickets are available now at a discounted rate for advanced purchases at www.nycomiccon.com. You can also book your travel arrangements online now on the travel page of the website. Don't miss out on the 2007 New York Comic Con. Visit our website to get all the information you need. That was cool. Yeah, so there you have it. Friend Van Lenti. He has a number of very, very interesting projects coming uh, in the future, not the least of which is Modox 11. And like I said in the interview, I am so glad that they're calling it Supervillain Team Up. <laughs> that, that that is so nice of them to do that. A, a neat little homage to the old days, and um, it's Modoc. How can you go wrong with Modoc? Oh, I can count the ways with, with a K. Thankfully, not not like in the Marvel Adventures <laughs> where, where it was uh, spelled with a C because he wasn't. Designed, oh, he's a doctor. He's, yeah, you know, he's, uh, <laughs> he wasn't designed for killing. He was designed for conquest. No, he's designed for killing. <laughs> he's designed for children. <laughs> That's great. Now we're going to talk about a bunch of uh, recently released Marvel comics, and David is going to start off with... Blade number five. Ah, oh, cool. Uh, very cool with this cover. This, this, uh, you see our pal Blade with three claws from starting, with the ch- starting at his chin, protruding at the top of his skull, and in his sunglasses you see um, a familiar cowl, which we can all pretty much guess is is Wolverine's cow only because we see his claws on the cover. Uh, This was a... This is labeled a Casualties of War Civil War tie-in, and on the cover it says a Civil War tie-in featuring Wolverine, so as if the claws and the mask and the sunglasses didn't give it away. You find out on the cover who's who's in it, and I thought... I'm not going to... Mark Guggenheim is my pick for best find of 2006 and someone to watch for in 2007. I mean, we know he's got, he's writing Blade. He wrote a kick-ass Wolverine story. He's, uh, he's, he's got, he's got the Hyperion versus Nighthawk going on right now from the Squadron Supreme. And he's, uh, he's, he's going to do what he can to get a certain speedster up to, uh, well, up to speed over there for the guys down the street. And, like I like I've been saying, I, I'm this close to actually considering picking up one of the issues he, he's working on, but uh, I might wait for uh, for the trade, or I'll wait for uh, for Tom to tell me that it's okay to read it again. For shame, for shame. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Bart, man. I can't I can't get into Bart as much. Yeah. But in any case, Blade, this issue, first page, boom. Not only is it uh, you can tell it's a Civil War tie-in because we're at Shield we're on a shield helicarrier this page right here takes us back to issue i want to say number 47 of wolverine if you remember in that storyline vendetta wolverine was captured by shield he's talking to maria hill and she's saying basically that um he's asking about his atlantean friends She's saying they have diplomatic immunity. They let him go. And he's wearing this getup that's supposed to um, basically neuter his powers. And he gives the line. That that's, a, that's the mistake a lot of people make. They think that the claws are a power and they're not him. So he breaks out of the getup and, and he escapes. And this is, what, this is what Maria Hill does after he escapes. And you'll like this because there's an appearance by Morbius. 
Really? Yes. Oh, don't. Am I going to have to start picking up Blade now? Dude, what do you mean going to start? You I should have been. I like like you said. I've been really hesitant to touch it because of Chaken. And you have it's that's a valid reason, but his Marvel work is hands down so much better than any work he's been doing elsewhere lately. His um his his first few issues were phenomenal. He um he hasn't gotten lazy. He still does the uh he still has those those fun if someone's wearing a suit or uh or certain type of clothing, a trench coat or something like that, he still does his whole design with the fabrics and things like that. It looks you know, going back to his American flag days. He um Yeah, but is it overused like in Hawk Girl? He he no. just he just well, went. I didn't I, I didn't read Hawk Girl. Yeah, but. he he just went crazy with the zipatone and the the patterns and the textures in Hawk no, Girl. No, you'll, you'll you'll see some of the patterns. What what this does is this this will do flashbacks of uh, of young Eric Brooks from uh, like back in say say the twenties or the thirties. So you'll see some of the suits that the uh, the gentlemen were wearing back then. Oh, well, he's perfect for that. Right. Yeah. I mean the the, the period pieces are great and and his is his work is is you know it, it he's still he's still Howard shaking you know it's not like you could say oh you know whatever happened to Howard shaking there there's some maybe, maybe a couple figures here or there where you're gonna like maybe maybe the feet on a character every once in a while you'd be like okay well what would happen there yeah. but or you could say that about guy Gardner but I digress go ahead <laughs> yeah um but this is you know it's he does a pretty does a pretty nice rendition of, of Wolverine. Blade looks looks really good. I mean, the, the character himself, the, the character Blade, looks great. And as, as far as this issue, um, and I don't know if I should go into deep deep detail, but basically we find out that um, Maria Hill, and this is the tie into this is the Wolverine tie into this issue. Maria Hill decides to recruit Blade in getting Wolverine back because he, he escaped from S.H.I.E.L.D. so she's like well you know he's he needs to be it's it's mostly because he basically got away and he pissed her off you know she, she, she she's pissed so she she wants to get back with Wolverine so she um she recruits Blade and Blade says okay fine I'll do it because these have all been done in one issues there's been a slight plot line going through each issue but for the most part every issue is, is self-contained and which is another nice nice thing about this book it's um th- there have been th- some things happened in the past couple issues where blade is um blade's not <laughs> blade's wanted basically he's uh he's people are looking for him he um he he, he did some things that he shouldn't have done and uh Okay, well he's 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 on the run, and um, so you see, um, he he, uh, he he decides to okay, fine, he'll he'll go and and he'll he'll follow Maria Hill's orders and he'll go and track down Wolverine, and he does, and um, there's a line in here that Wolverine says that uh, he just got back from 15 rounds with Omega Red, so I'm wondering if this is also a tie-in. If this if this timeline follows some recent events that happened in Wolverine Origins, because I know there was some Omega Red appearances in the past few issues of that series, so right. I don't know how far back that story may have gone. Maybe it is happening in present day, and if so, you know, again, this kind of 
fits in nicely with Wolverine's own title. So not only do you have Civil War, the, and this isn't really a Civil War tie-in. You can, you know, you just know that Maria Hill needs Blade to do something, and that's all you really need to know. You don't need to know that. Oh my God! Well, you know, is this Blade pro Reg anti Reg? Is is he gonna, you know, choose? And Blade and Wolverine fight, and it's it's a pretty neat fight, and it ends. It ends with a, not with a bang, but with a, um, with a whimper, and and I don't mean that as 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 it was it fell flat. It it ends because it, it was the only way it could end, and you see at the end that um, why why it did, and and it has to do with the, uh, with a flashback of, from Blade's early days, and uh, he was probably this may have been New York, but um, but again from from the nineteen twenties. And it all kind of comes full circle, and it's it's a neat little it's a neat little tale. It's a done in one issue, and in the letters page, um, the sixth issue will conclude the first volume of the eventual trade paperback. So, um, I do believe Guggenheim and probably Shaken are on it for the first twelve issues. I think they're on it for for at least a year. So, looks like there will be a trade of the first six issues at least, and. I I do recommend Blade Number Five, not so much as a Civil War tie-in, but just because it's it's a really, really funky story. The and, uh, and it's got a kick-ass Jurjevic cover. The cover is nice, really cover cool, is very nice. The um, it's it it seems a little off when you don't have Ken Brusenak lettering a Howard Shaken page. Um, hey, you're just so but, used to it. You are, and and like I, like I've been saying, Guggenheim is the writer, Howard Shaken is the artist. You have Edgar Delgado on colors, so this is Shaken inking himself as well. Virtual calligraphies, Russ Wooten on letters, uh, like you said, the Marco Georgieva cover. Uh, Aubrey Sitterson is editor, and that's who gave us Blade Number Five. I think I'll definitely pick that up and trade. I'll give Howie okay. another chance. Okay, and that you know it really hurts to say that because at one time, Jaken was one of my top favorites during the whole American flag, Black Kiss, and 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 Black Hawk. The man the could Black do Hawk, the yeah, shadow. The man could do no wrong. And right. then uh, I think it was Hawk Girl that really soured me on him because that's just poop. I mean, uh, it's it's not his best effort. And that's that's what I hear. I mean, I, I again, I wasn't I wasn't reading Hawkman, and therefore I wasn't. I didn't read it when it turned into Hawk Girl. And I do hear that, you know, Hawk Girl just looked like poop. And, and I have the two issue Guy Gardner, and, and that's not, yeah, you know, anything to write home about. I mean, it's, it's, a, neat, it's a neat enough story. It ties into to Infinite Crisis with the Ranthanagar War. And, and, Ooh, I should run out and get it then. Oh, you should buy three. <laughs> and, um, you know, I like Guy Gardner. And I think Guy Gardner is kicking ass right now in the Green Lantern Corps, or at least his ass has been kicked, according to the issue eight. But the um, it's you know it's it I, I, it pained me to see a Shaken book illustrated this way, and and it really pained me to see it in this damn prestige Dark Knight yeah format. Right. Well, I'm really looking forward to that, and I will take your word because I. I, I really I respect your opinion. You've been right before a lot of times, so I'm going to pick it up. Really? Yes, and I like Blade. Were they written down? I be- no, you're right. They, they and and that's that's the other thing. I um I do like the character 
Blade. I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't read every appearance he has. And and you know who else likes Blade? Mark Guggenheim. If you go to his website, he has basically the treatment that he wrote to get this job of writing Blade. He has all of Blade's appearances written down. What the what what happened in that issue, so he could kind of tie everything in together, and and you know basically you could find out where where some of his earlier origins or the tellings of his earlier origins where they may have kind of strayed off a little bit and how he's trying to tie everything that because a few people are like well is this really in marvel continuity is this like the movie blade is this you know is this really the same guy that was bitten by morbius and and this that and the other and and guggenheim is doing a pretty nifty job of, of trying to tie all those ends together and 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 it, it helps going back in those flashbacks to see blade's earlier days yeah Blade, to me, will always be a child of Gene Colan. And how cool would it have been if Marvel got Gene to do this? Which would be very cool. Yeah, it, it would have been neat. But I, like I said, I'll give Chaykin the benefit of the doubt, and I will listen to your words of wisdom and pick up the trade. What do you have to lose? That's right. Yeah. Introducing the world's greatest superheroes, Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo. Superman, the Man of Steel. Aquaman, the famous undersea crime fighter. Tarzan of the Apes. Shazam, now featured on network television. Captain America, fighting injustice the world over. Spider-Man, the weird wall climber. The Superfoes, the arch enemies of the superheroes. The Super Gals, Wonder Woman. Supergirl, Batgirl, and Catwoman, the Green Arrow, crime fighter from the forest, Iron Man, power personified, the Falcon, that great black superhero, the Green Goblin, Spider-Man's strange enemy, the Lizard, half man, half beast, and that fantastic green giant superhero, the Hulk. And for 1976, the Fantastic Four, the torch, faster than the speed of light. The Thing, Ben Grimm, Man of Granite. Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Girl, both have the powers of invisibility. The Fantastic Four, fighting for truth and honor. with his sword of justice. Four, using his Viking power against evil. And that's exactly how I felt about Ms. Marvel special number one. Now, what was that about? Because why was it Ms. Marvel special? Okay, it was written by Brian Reed, who did the Ultimate Spider-Man game with Bendis. And he wrote Spider-Woman Origin, and I believe he's the Isn't writer... Is he writing Ms. Marvel? Yes, he's the, on, he's the okay. writer of the ongoing Ms. Marvel comic. But the reason why I took a chance on this was because of the penciler. Giuseppe Camancoli, who did absolutely amazing work on Joe Casey's criminally underrated Intimates for Wildstorm. Oh, did I love that series punchy and destra and mtv and it was just an amazing book that got 
virtually no attention in the marketplace. And they canned it after, I think, like 11 or, or 12 issues. But it was great. If you can find the intimates in the bargain bins, pick it up. It is fantastic. He, he plays around with information in the book where on the bottom of every page there was this little news crawl where it would look like, you know, like on the bottom of, say, CNN, where we just throw little sound bites and news bites at you. And uh, did you know that Punchy, you know, was molested as a child? Blah, 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 like goofy little shit that really added to the book. It was like an experience. It was okay. it, it was a cool book, and I love Joe Casey. And uh, Cam and Coley also did Captain Adam Armageddon, which was pretty sweet. The book was inked by Lorenzo Ruggiero. And colors by Chris Sotomayor, who's doing just fantastic work on Planet Hulk, which is... Um, wait, wait, it'll come to me. It's wonderful. That's right. Because it is. Uh, Letters by Dave Sharp. I'm a huge fan of the binary phase of Ms. Marvel. I love the binary character. You say Starjammers, and I am there. And so I said... It's a one-shot. Let me take a chance. Written by Brian Reed, whose work I haven't really been all that exposed to. Uh, I don't read Ms. Marvel, the ongoing. So, But I do like the character, and I like sexy, and Ms. Marvel sexy, so I gave it a shot. And I'll tell you, I got a lot more than I expected. It is a really neat comic that has a neat little character in it that will probably show up somewhere else in the Marvel Universe, judging by the power he possesses. To start off, there's two kids in the New York Public Library. The one is named Gavin, and he reads to his buddy. And that kind of threw me a little bit. Why would these two teen? Why would this one teenager be reading to this other teenager? You know, is he illiterate? Can he read? So, you know, I'm going along with it. And it turns out that this Gavin has the power to project mental images based on what he reads. So if he reads a passage in a book, say he turns to Carol Danvers' novel Binary and reads a passage in the days that followed her departure from the Starjammer ship, and he's reading to this kid, and his mental images of, from what he's reading are being transferred into the kid, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. you know. So, so he's reading about the... Uh, Days of Binary, when she left the Star Jammers, and she hears this this call, and she goes to the center of the universe and, and encounters this entity called the Keeper. And the Keeper tries to enlist her aid in fighting something called the Swarm. So the kid keeps reading to his, his buddy, and his thoughts not only are picked up by his friend. They're picked up by everybody in the library. So you have these mesmerized people inside the library. Just Their, their eyes go white, and they, 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 they lose all control of what they're doing, and the effect spreads outside of the library into surrounding Manhattan, where, it turns out, Carol Danvers is having lunch with Simon Williams. And it seems Simon is hinting that he would like a little bit more than lunch. But, <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? He's you know? a player. Yeah, that's right. So, all of a sudden, manifesting right in the middle of Manhattan is this gigantic, massive, just gargantuan keeper. Just smack dab in the middle of Manhattan. So, being heroes, Ms. Marvel and Simon go to check it out. 
And when they do, good old Simon gets incapacitated. And she takes care of him, goes back to the keeper to find out what's up. And she forms this mental link with Gavin, the kid that's reading the book. And it turns out that this kid is altering reality based on what he's reading. Wow. Ms. Marvel encounters the swarm and she talks the kid through because for some reason he can't locate the book. And she basically tells him, well, you don't really need words to generate mental images. You could just imagine stuff. So he imagines her in the binary guise. And she becomes binary and she gets the powers of, that she had when she was binary and fries the swarm. Everything is right again. But it turns out this kid was an experiment by AIM. They wanted to duplicate the Scarlet Witch's powers. Oh, wow. So this kid can alter reality. And at the end of the comic, well, maybe I should just leave that to those interested in this book. And let's just say that it plants a couple of seeds that may just have lasting implications in the Marvel Universe. The art, wow. yeah, it's really cool. The art is fantastic. If, if you liked the Intimates, you will love this. I think the real star of the book, not to shortchange... Camoncoli and Inker Ruggiero, but the real star is Chris Sotomayor. The colors in this are beautiful. They're really, really nice. They're almost creamy, uh, delicious colors. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, with, with any Ms. Marvel book, you're going to get a certain level of cheesecake. Yeah, that's in here, too. It's just, it's just a well-produced comic. Very interesting. Uh, it raises a lot of questions. And for two ninety nine, I think you could do a lot worse. I, I very much enjoyed this book. It showed a little bit of the, the fragile side of Carol Danvers that we don't usually see. We got to see Binary again after all these years. Yeah, really? Yeah. And you get a little uh, bit of cosmic in here and a little bit of questions raised and, and some beautiful art. And I think it's well worth the purchase. So if you are interested in Ms. Marvel and you're a little bit on the fence, you know, is this one shot worth it? Is it going to be, you know, is it? Is it worth my time? I would say yes, because, like I said, there may be more to come from this Gavin kid. If he has the powers of the Scarlet Witch, look what that did. So, and, and, and he thanks her at the end for introducing him to his imagination. He said something along the lines of, like, I thought I had to have a book, but you showed me I don't. So, basically, there's nothing I can't oh, do. like limitless. Yeah, so he, he thanks her, and, you know... You, Buy the book and, and, and read the ending. It's really cool. And it, it turns out I, I have read something by Brian Reed. I forgot, only because it's been so long and I miss, I'm, I'm waiting for the second issue. He's co-writing uh, Illuminati with Bendis. Right, exactly. I, I knew there was one I forgot. Yeah. How could you forget Illuminati? Oh, because and, it's been so long. Yeah, and, well, and he's worked with Bendis on the Ultimate Spider-Man game, so they, they probably have fostered a working relationship that's, yeah. you know. Very cool. Damn, you can make me go out and look for a Miss Marvel comic book. Damn it. <laughs> ah, but she's pro reg. Okay. Yeah, take a chance on Carol. <laughs> <laughs> this is Chris Neesman from the Around Comics Podcast. And when you're not listening to Bullpen Bulletins, come over and check us out at www.aroundcomics.com. <laughs> My next issue will be Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number 16. Oh, what a great book. And it looks phenomenal. Scott Eaton needs to be on a regular comic. Yep. You know, I mean, it's nice to be a fill-in. 
on on a friendly neighborhood where you know you had folks like Michael Ringo and and Todd Nock is coming back on it, but um, but Eaton Eaton I think is a phenomenal Spider-Man artist, and he can draw like real regular people. And speaking of real regular people, although this person is larger than life, I do believe I spotted an appearance by none other than manly man Bo Smith. Ah. It's well, the damn pages were numbered. It's um. It's after they realize that basically the book signing is done. This guy in the background behind Betty and Flash says, Thanks a lot, lady. Now I can't get my book autographed. Right. She tells him to dry up. <laughs> um, he's wearing a Chicago Cubs hat, and I do believe that, it, or maybe it's a Cincinnati hat, but um, that, that looks an awful lot like Bo Smith. So last, last issue we had Stephen Colbert. This issue we got Bo Smith. It, it's... Um, Hard for me to say who I'd rather hang out with, although I think I'd rather hang out with Bo. Um, this was a, aside from the art, this was a, uh, this was a pretty neat issue. Um, I was really thrown for a loop at the end, especially in the hospital, when the vulture was paid a visit by somebody. And what really, what I, what I, what, what really, really threw me was how Peter David just Gave, did a complete 180. I've been pissed at Deb Whitman since this story arc was solicited. Even before the comic came out, I was like, you know, here's someone else picking on poor Peter and trying to make that buck. And all of a sudden, we get in a span of basically two pages why she did what she did. Right. And certainly lends, lends a sympathetic edge to the character. It really does. Yep. So, Christian Peter David, because I was all set on really getting pissed off at this chick for a long time, and it's hard to be pissed off at someone when Scott Eaton draws women the way he does. So, I'd, I'd be real forgiving, too, at that point. There's also an appearance by Jamie Madrox, and I, I was a little... I think of, of the only criticism or, or complaint I might have is that I was expecting... Maybe based on the covers, maybe based on the last issue, I was expecting a little bit more of a fight between Spider-Man and Vulture. Yeah, like where do the cactuses come in? The cacti. Cacti. The uh, well, you know, it's. I think it's a little pun that Mister Eaton was having with the cover, where right. you know, what else is a vulture going to do but check on its prey? And right. here's Spider-Man in the desert, gasping right. for water. Yeah, it was it was a cool cover. I, I enjoyed it. I'm not one it was, of those. It, it was a catching cover. Yeah, I'm not one of those ones where the cover has to dictate what goes on in size. But it, <laughs> I would like covers more than than pinups that that some covers do. But uh, no, overall, I thought it was it was a nice issue. I'm I'm curious to see um, more of Nurse Arrow, and um, well, she, she she's definitely got some Halle Berry to her. It yeah, seems. Yeah, exactly. But. Uh, Flash looks great. Betty looks great. Deb. I mean, it, 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 it's 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 a gorgeous looking comic book. Mm-hmm. Peter David is still writing a great Spider Man, and it's I'd, I'd, it'd be really hard for him to write a bad Spider Man. Right. And it's it it ends the uh, it ends this little three part storyline. I think I, I think it in, in a nice little bow. And I was. Um, I, I, I was happy with it. I, I have no complaints about the whole uh, the, the whole Deb Whitman storyline. See, Peter David threw me for a loop a little bit in this issue because at one point you start to question 
what's really reality? What's what's actually going on in this thing? And I'm talking about the part where the orderly or the intern or whoever that person in the hospital was that said that he came into the room to change the bedpan and he's very yeah. very built and very rugged and, and his hair's all ragged like I mean I, I realized that it was Peter after a while and talk about out of character action for Peter to even to go through the motions to smother somebody. And that's where I was thrown because I was like, wait, is this really is this really Spider Man? I mean I saw the image inducer and I'm like, wait, is is that really but is that really Spider-Man? And then on the last page, or second to last page, you uh, you you get that nice little little quote from from Peter, basically saying, you know, um, for someone who's begging to die, you fight for life pretty hard. Right. Well, it, it, yeah, it was a little bit of tough love where exactly he 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 brought him to the brink, and the old vulture realized that he didn't want to die. But what a way to do it! But yeah. a very uncharacteristic move by Peter. Very surprising. Absolutely. And that's what Peter David's good at. He's he sometimes throws this this wrench in the in the in the machine that just uh, it makes you double do a double take and say, what yeah. in the hell is going on here? But it, you're right, all in all it was a great issue. I don't like Arrow at all. I, I Is that I, just a feeling you get or you, well you you've probably, you've been reading her since probably the beginning. I she does nothing for me. She's just uh Yes, there's a mystery around her, but frankly, I don't care what that mystery is. She's just... Maybe he has invested enough page time to this character where he's has yet to flesh her out to where he wants her. I don't know. She just she d- d- just does nothing for me. God help me, I'm a little bit tired of female super-powered characters that have blades coming out of their hand or <laughs> or spikes or something. Enough. Enough with that. I mean, X-23 is cool, and there's a valid reason why she has the accoutrements that she does. But I, I, don't, I don't want another woman that has this thing that comes... I, I don't want to see it. But if I, I, I have faith in Peter David that he can make something out of it. But for right now, Arrow is the least interesting part of that book for me. Wow. Put it this way. When Flash Thompson is more interesting than another character... That character needs a little yeah. bit of work, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I really, really like Scott Eaton's pencils. I have since the cross-gen days, Sigil. Just a, if you can dredge up those old cross-gen issues, you could probably get them really cheap now. They are fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure. That was one company I really hated to see go. I totally agree with you. That's a great book. And you, I mean, you're talking about Scott Eaton, but, I mean, naturally I have to give it up for... Mr. John Dell, because I think the inks also really just make the pages pop on this. I mean, basically, you know, we have Peter David writing it, Scott Eaton is the penciler, John Dell is the anchor, and I like their little, um, the little trick they used on the splash page, putting their names on the page there. Matt Miller is the colorist, who you enjoy so much on Amazing, so there's that, um, there's that balance there between these two series. Uh, virtual Calligraphy's Corey Petit is letterer, and Michael O'Connor is assistant editor, and Axel is the editor. Although I believe with the next issue, the Spider-Man titles may be under the editorship of Tom Brevoort. Yeah, because Axel got the X books. Right. Yeah. So all in all, uh, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man sixteen, I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed the whole. Uh, the Whitman storyline 
uh, both for the story Peter David was telling and naturally for the fabulous work by Mr. Eaton, Monsieur's Eaton and Dell. <laughs> Once again, got things nicely under control. Now, I might surprise you with this next pick, because oh. I, I've been down on Tony Stark ever since Civil War began. Well, I've been down on Tony Stark for quite a while, and let me do a little bit of backstory. I've read Iron Man since the first issue, since the Archie Goodwin, Gene Colan issue, through the Jerry Conway stuff, up to the Bob Layton, David Michelini stuff, Devil in a Bottle, Armor Wars 1 and 2. I loved Iron Man for a lot of years. But they lost me during Avengers The Crossing. Uh, that soured me so much on the Iron Man book that I just... I, I haven't bought the title regularly in 10 years. Wow. And I picked up Iron Man Hypervelocity number one 
entirely based on the fact that Adam Warren was writing it and did the layouts because I'm a huge Adam Warren fan. Uh, the virtuoso writer illustrator of the Dirty Pear books, Wildstorm's Gen 13. I mean, the guy's been around and uh, I really like his style. It's very, it, it's it's got the influence of two cultures. He's He's got that, the Japanese manga style, but he also has this unique Adam Warren style where his women, y- you see an Adam Warren wim- woman and you know exactly who drew it. Mm-hmm. He, he just has this very voluptuous line and uh, I, I really enjoy his stuff. So I said to myself, Adam Warren, I gotta get it. Even though it's freaking Tony Stark, I'll you know I'll muddle through somehow. I was really surprised. the The art by Brian Denham, who follows Adam Warren's layouts naturally, is really, really accomplished. I'm sure Adam Warren and Brian Denham collaborated on the design for the armor. It is fantastic. It is so much better than that lobster suit we see him in now. I really don't like the current Iron Man armor. This right. is, this Iron Man armor is sleek. It's hyper-detailed. It's very high-tech. And it's naturally where Adam Warren goes. It's got a little bit of a manga-esque feel to it. So Brian Denham did the art, which is pencils and inks. Pencils and inks, yeah. We have colors by Guru Effects. And letters by Art Monkey's Dave Lamphere. Oh. In terms of a first issue of a miniseries, a six-issue miniseries, this was, in my estimation, the perfect first issue. Because it raised a hell of a lot of questions, and it was a thrill ride from the first page to the last. Now, hypervelocity, as the title implies, is all about speed. This book moves at a a fast clip. It starts off with Tony trying to outrace fighter jets and missiles, and it it just shows you how fast Tony Stark's life is. He he's he's going 400 miles an hour to try and outrace these these planes, and he's got an MP3 player built into the armor. So he's 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 screaming through the sky, and it, it makes a reference to the sound rushing past him at 104 decibels. But it says that the music is roaring at only a few decibels less. So he's trying to outrace these planes, and there's music screaming inside his his head, and he's he's maneuvering and he's ducking and weaving, and it's just every page just screams past you, and it's very very high tech as again you'll get that with Adam Warren we're introduced to Major Tom Aramaki commanding officer in shield special response unit alpha which is the cape killer unit so that's one question why is shield and the cape killers trying to bring down Iron Man no idea they really don't say they leave you hanging which is very cool I want to know why shield is going after Stark so uh, there's a lot of jargon dropped in this book and they use a weapon on Tony called the God Hammer which is this get this a modified Pershing 2 tactical ballistic missile carrying a payload of 60 super hardened depleted uranium core kinetic energy penetrators that is so cool <laughs> 
So they, they launched this missile, and they only got clearance to launch one of them. So what does that tell you? This is a badass piece of technology. And basically the book is Tony Stark trying to get away from the jets and Tony Stark trying to get away from this missile and failing. Oh. Right. And in between the chase, we get a little bit of a glimpse into Tony's teenage years and to the meshes well with the rest of the book he's screaming down the highway on this suzuki motorcycle with a ridiculously hot woman strapped to his back which naturally and they show a bunch of wine coolers thrown at the side of the road from where they started from so this is tony stark high tech alcohol and hot women this everything that that sums tony stark up right there for some odd reason this woman appears in the in the guise of his old girlfriend like the the old girlfriend her name is Naomi she's uh, like a say a strawberry blonde and she shifts halfway through the memory into this woman speaking Japanese with dark hair and leather and tattoos and and it happens somewhere else in the book too where where he's you could tell Tony's a good Christian boy because he's taking all his problems and all his failures to heart and he imagines himself being surrounded by the Iron Man armor which has all these razor blades and knives and lasers and fire that when when it when it consumes him he's in pain so it's like it's kind of of a self-flagellation type thing where he's beating himself up for his his past failures but in between this memory or hallucination or waking dream whatever you want to call it this woman appears again and this time she's speaking French so I want to know who this woman is why where is she from why is she doing this it, like I said the book raises a lot of questions it's really really cool it's a very neat very kinetic fast-paced thrill ride of a book that's I think is well worth two ninety nine. I'm gonna stick. Cool. I'm gonna stick around for all six issues, even though it's Tony Stark. And for anyone to make me enjoy reading a book where Tony Stark is the main character, that's a big feat. Right. Be- because in light of recent events in Civil War, like I said, I'm not too happy with the uh, the millionaire playboy and well billionaire probably. And the book has a real cool sense of humor too, because Aramaki calls Stark the genius mustache. <laughs> it's just you know and and he drops all this jargon constantly every page is loaded with this this high tech pseudo scientific well i'm a, let's not assume it's pseudo scientific because i'm not all that versed in the military so i'm assuming that that adam warren has done his research it's just it's a it's a thrill ride excellent this brian denham yeah he does some amazing stuff he will be a star one day I, I'll make a prediction. I, I really like his his style. He's a comic space friend. That's true. So good job, Brian Denham and Adam Warren and and company for producing a book where Tony Stark does about Iron Man. Yeah, Tony Stark doesn't look like a a pinhead, a dick, <laughs> a douche. <laughs> yeah, and and there's a really neat twist at the end too, which I won't reveal by the book. It, oh damn! Yeah, it's a lot of fun. When when the God Hammer splits, it's it's a sight to behold. All these these missiles just screaming at Tony Stark, and and they do make contact, and it's very very cool. 
like you have I, later, I was thinking about picking this up in trade. Yeah, have I said cool enough? That that's the perfect word to describe this book. It's wired cool. It's cutting edge, high tech, Warren Ellis style technology loaded with jargon. Great sci fi. I liked it. Liked it a lot. And it's freaking Iron Man. You know, it's like I, um, I I read it and I said I can't like this. I got I'm not gonna like it because it's 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 the the fascist um, senor mustache, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. But I came away from it, you know, really really pleased. Well, El Dave was, is now your friend for life. Yeah, very good issue. Well, brother, I think we should hammer this one home because we got a lot planned for next episode. Yeah, I think we do. Yeah. I think I got the memo. Um, in addition to an interview we will be running, and we're not going to say who will make it a surprise, David and I are going to be probably butting heads on Wolverine 50. <laughs> I'll reread it. Maybe there'll be less butting heads than we think. <laughs> Thank you for being with us, and we will see you next time. Bye, folks. Bye, folks.